Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ryan. Emmanuel, that Old Testament name given to Messiah, and it means God with us. What a powerful song. Thank you so much for that. Take your Bible, please. Turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. The book of Genesis, chapter 3. As we think about the Christmas season, we usually do not think of a battle. We usually do not think of warfare and of unrest. And even though we live in a day and time when warfare and unrest is the standard fare on all of the news because it is spread across our world, even though that would be the case at Christmas time, we like to set that aside for a moment. We like to think of things such as peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We like to think of that starry night and shepherds mumbling in the quietness and lateness of the hour, in the silence of a Judean hillside with stars scattered across the black night sky like a thousand diamonds on black velvet. We like to think of that as a time of great peace. We like to think of the words peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And those are all concepts of Christmas that are not unbiblical but perhaps miss the main point. This morning when we talk about our upcoming Christmas holiday, we're turning all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first announcement of Christmas. This announcement in Genesis 3.15, and I will read those words to you this morning, where God speaking a curse upon Satan in the garden says, to Satan, I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman. Between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Those words to us in English sound rather enigmatic, but contained in that verse, Genesis 3.15, which I believe to be the most important verse of the Old Testament, it is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, encapsulated in that verse, immediately following the fall of man, within the context of divine judgment, a curse, within the context of sin and failure, pronounced in that verse as God is predicting and pronouncing a curse on humanity and on Satan himself. There is a promise of hope and of grace. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me. God is a God of justice and a God of judgment, but he is also a God of grace. And in the darkest hour to befall humanity up until this brief point in humanity's very short history, God says though there are consequences, there is also hope. Where there are consequences, there is also grace. But in Genesis 3.15, it is crystal clear from the reading of the text that this is a declaration of war. Genesis 3.16, pardon me, 15. Genesis 3.15 is where the battle lines are drawn for all of human history up to the present moment and extending into the future. It is an explanation of why we are the way we are today and why the world is the way it is today. And it is God saying, I have drawn a line in the sand. These are the battle lines, and you are either on one side or the other. There's no mediocrity here. There's no halfway here. Every person in this room is part of a battle. 
You are on one side or another. And this battle was declared by God in Genesis 3.15. Now here's what I want to do. This battle is epic because it stems from all of the history of mankind all the way through the second coming of Christ and beyond. I want us to examine this epic battle both as it has been and will be waged. This verse is a prediction of Christmas. Special Monty, wait a minute. I don't see the word Christmas in the verse. The word Christmas or the concept of Christmas is in the verse in the idea of the seed of the woman. I'll get more into that. By the way, a very unique phrase. Every word in chapter three, verse 15 in the Hebrew is chosen with absolute precision so that you could not, you could not possibly get the wrong impression. God is promising something very unique. The seed of woman. Well, you said, Pastor Monty, women don't carry semen, if I may be blunt about it. This is true. God uses a very interesting phrase to describe a promise of something he is going to do, and that promise is fulfilled in Christ on the day of Christmas. But I'm a little ahead of myself. I want us to think about this battle of the ages. Notice, if you will, in chapter 3, verse 15. God, in speaking to Satan, who has come in the form of a serpent, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The word enmity, of course, means animosity. But beyond that, the Hebrew word means struggle. It means conflict. It means warfare. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. It also means a blood feud. Pastor Monty, what in the world is a blood feud? How many are familiar with the Hatfields and the McCoys? Okay, okay. I, I've known in my life, by the way, both a relative of the Hatfields and both a relative of the McCoys. I've, I've known them. By the way, both of them beautiful Christian people who would never shoot at one another anymore. Okay, I understand that the family gets together and has a football or softball game or something when they have family reunions. The two families get together and play a sporting event. I understand that that has happened in the past. Uh, but the Hatfields and McCoys, that's the classic blood feud. In other words, you have, you have two families that for some reason or another got out of sorts with each other. They got at odds with one another. And then their getting at odds with one another was not just a one generational thing, but it carried on generation after generation after generation. The Hebrew word enmity has a specific application to the concept of a blood feud. And the word seed, both speaking of Satan's seed and the seed of the woman, the word seed presumes that this will be a multi-generational situation. In other words, what we have in Genesis 3.15 is a declaration of a blood feud that would exist between the followers of Satan and the followers of Christ. I will be more specific after a while. That will exist between the followers of Satan and the followers of Christ throughout the entire age, both Old Testament and New Testament era. It is anger. It is conflict, it is war, it is feuding parties. You spasmati, who are the feuding parties? Well, again, I would invite your attention to chapter 3, verse 15, where God says, I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman, and then he defines that more closely. 
It is in this definition that you have to pay particular attention. And between thy seed, Satan, your seed, your descendants, and her seed, her descendants. Now I want you to pause for a moment. In a very general sense, it can be said, for example, of the seed of Satan. I'll deal with him first. It can be said that those who follow and comply with Satan are generally the seed of Satan. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the most religious of all the sects. They were the strictest, most legalistic of all the sects. But what did Jesus say to them, that religious sect? He said, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of the father ye will do. By the way, it's not because they didn't keep the rules, folks. Ye have your father the devil because they did not believe in the Messiah. They had rejected Jesus. He said, ye have your father the devil. If you had known him, Jesus said, the father, you would have known me as well. So certainly in a broad and general sense, the seed of Satan are those who follow or comply with Satan in general. Oh, 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 by the way, put the brakes on. Some of you may not understand this. Maybe you're new here. Just as I believe in a literal, real person, the Lord Jesus Christ, so I believe in a literal and real person, Satan, the devil, that old serpent, the accuser of the brethren. Listen carefully. I'm asking you, you believe in the devil has horns? No, 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 no. I believe he looks a lot more human than you're comfortable imagining. But he is one single person, one single personality, a fallen angel most likely, who taints the world with evil. The Bible speaks of him a lot. And if you only want to believe in Jesus and not in another supernatural power, the supernatural dark side, then you will need to cash in your Bible immediately because you cannot understand the story. And by the way, you will have no conception of human history if you reject the concept of a real and personal devil. God here is speaking to Satan, and he refers to Satan as one who has seed. Generally speaking, Satan's followers, of course, but I think there's a more specific application that will find complete fulfillment. You see what's really interesting about that text, and I am not a Hebraist, so I had to study deeply into this, but what is, what is really interesting about the text is all of the constructions in that text in the Hebrew are in the singular. And it's very oddly put together in the Hebrew, this text, very unique. Those who understand Hebrew will, will attest to this. And all of it is singular. In other words, there is one seed. Now, the word seed can be used as a general group of descendants. Understand that. But the fact that it's put together in the singular focuses it on a particular individual, a particular seed. In other words, we're talking about Satan now and his seed. Well, all of those who ascribe to, who are part of the satanic side of the question, the enmity, the warfare, the battle, well, all of those who subscribe to the satanic side of this equation are certainly part of his seed in a general sense. It focuses more specifically on the sense of one individual, just like Adam and Eve. It, with Eve, the seed of the woman. We could say, well, Pastor Bonnie, those are the descendants of Eve. Yeah, generally speaking, you could say that. But again, the singular construction in the Hebrew points to something very, very special. Who is the seed of the woman ultimately? 
According to Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4, Christ was made of a woman made under the law. Fundamentally, the seed of woman, the seed of Eve, is Jesus Christ in his virgin birth. Understand something today, and don't miss this. God is one, pardon me, Christ is 100% God and 100% man. That wasn't always the case. He became a man at the incarnation. And it was the Virgin Mary who conceived by the Holy Ghost, the person of Jesus. Now listen carefully, they're a little theological right now, but you need this. Who is Jesus? The humanity of Jesus, for example, his physical body. The humanity of Jesus came from Mary, the genetics of Mary. The divinity or deity of Jesus came from God. So that in something theologians refer to as the hypostatic union, he is the God-man. Both 100% God and 100% man. By the way, if you deny that truth, you deny the very words of Jesus. Jesus in John chapter 14 said these words to Philip. Philip said, Lord, if, if you'll show us the Father, if you'll show us God, we'll be satisfied. It sufficeth us. We'll be satisfied. Philip said that to Jesus. And Jesus looks incredulously upon Philip and he says, have you been so long with me and have, have you not known me? Philip, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Over and over again, Jesus claimed to be God of very God, yet God come in the flesh. That being the case of the seed of the woman, when we consider the seed of Satan, you say, Pastor Mahdi, is there one end goal? Is there one individual in whom this seed will be encapsulated in perfection and incarnation? And I will submit to you the answer is yes. Who is he, Pastor? I believe he's the coming Antichrist. I want you to listen very carefully. Oh, Pastor Monty, you, you really believe there's an end time events and a coming Antichrist? I believe the Bible. I believe both the Old and the New Testament who predict the Antichrist in stunning description. But as I was studying for the message, I found a comment. I usually don't do this, but I'm going to share something with you this morning. There was an old Bible commentator. By the way, I like the old ones better. I like the old ones better. Do you know why? The old commentators, the old commentaries, they weren't ashamed of the Bible. They didn't try to modernize it, turn it into some kind of woke pulp fiction. They didn't try to alter the words and mess around with it. I like the old ones better. A very classical commentator, renowned Bible scholar by the name of Arthur W. Pink. I'm going to read this, and I want you to listen to his excerpt. When we think about the seed of Satan, and we're equating him with the Antichrist this morning... He said this, and I quote, Satan's seed and the woman's seed, the Antichrist and the Christ. In these two persons, all prophecy converges. In the former of these expressions, thy seed or Satan's seed, we have more than a hint of the supernatural and satanic nature of the character of the Antichrist. From the beginning, the devil has been an imitator, and the climax will not be reached until he daringly travesties the hypostatic union of the two natures of our blessed Lord, his humanity and his deity. In other words, there will come a world leader, an antichrist, who will imitate 
that imitation is a travesty, it is a mockery of Christ. Being far from totally different, he will present himself as a Messiah, a man of peace, and a man of hope. But Dr. Pink continues, the Antichrist will be the man of sin, and yet scripture calls him the son of perdition, literally the seed of the serpent, just as our Lord was the son of man and the son of God in one person. This is the only logical conclusion. If her seed ultimates in a single personality, the Christ, then by every principle of sound interpretation, thy seed, meaning Satan's seed, must also ultimate in a single personality, the Antichrist. He said, Pastor, what does this mean? We're engaged in a battle. And the first verse of the Bible to mention the principle of Christmas, the promise of a coming Messiah, draws the battle lines between good and evil. It draws the battle lines between Satan and God. It draws the battle lines between Christ and Antichrist. It explains why we are in the condition we are in in this world and why darkness descends so easily upon whole regions in this earth. It explains the violence, the pain, the hatred. It explains everything that we hope Christmas will fix. The battle lines have been drawn. The same can be said of the seed of the woman as far as this is concerned. The singular construction is specific. Galatians 4.4, 4, how do you know, Pastor Monty, this is Christ? Because Paul said so. But when the fullness of time was come, at right, the right moment, Paul here is speaking specifically of Christmas, of the birth of Christ. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law, the Virgin Mary, the fulfillment of the promise that the seed of the woman would come. This is, of course, a reference to the virgin birth, but Genesis 3.15 predicts the Messiah and his humanity through Mary. But in that verse, then, we have that word enmity. Makes us a little uncomfortable. Pastor Monty, you shouldn't have any enemies. <laughs> you're going to have enemies. If you stand for something, you're going to have enemies. The battle lines are drawn between Christ and Satan, God's children and Satan's children, good angelic beings and fallen angelic beings. Pastor, do you believe in angels? Yes, 100%. Now, now look at me, folks, look at me. This might turn somebody off, and you might say, I'm never coming back to crazy church again. And you're fine with that. We're fine with that. We'd really like you to come, but, you know. I believe in angels. Bible teaches I believe in demons. Bible teaches it. Unclean spirits, the Bible teaches it. I'm gonna tell you something, folks. I don't care about your science. By the way, follow the science and you're likely to go straight off a cliff. I don't care about science, what I care is what the Bible says. And I believe what the Bible says. And the Bible represents to us fundamentally a supernatural worldview. And to reject that or to downplay it is to reject or downplay the bulk of Scripture, as well as the context historically and intellectually in which the Scripture was transmitted to man. It is a battle between Christ and Satan, God's children and Satan's children, good angels, fallen angels. It is a battle ultimately in verse 15 between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And then in the final analysis a battle between Christ and Antichrist. Well, Pastor Monty, how has this battle played out? 
Can I give you some illustrations? Just from your Bible. But there are many I could give you from history, from current events, from the newspaper, from Fox News this morning. The battle began in its prediction in chapter 3, verse 15. But we quickly see where battle formation was taken up in Genesis chapter 4. I won't read it. You can read it later or jot down the passage. But Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were both going to bring offerings to the Lord, but Abel's offering was acceptable to God because it followed the prescription of a blood offering. Cain's offering was not because it represented human works. Abel's offering was accepted, Cain's was not, and what did Cain do? He turned around and killed his brother Abel. Pastor Monty, why? Because in the promise of Genesis 3.15, Eve knew that one of her descendants would be that Messiah, that promised one. She didn't know all the detail theologically that we have, but she understood that. And so she was thrilled at the birth of Cain and Abel, and Cain, though, siding with the wrong side, kills Abel. Later on, though, there's good news. Seth is born. You remember old Seth? Seth is born. In fact, Eve declares this. She says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And again, the Hebrew construction is really significant. The man from the Lord. In other words, Abel has died, but now Seth has come to take his place, and Seth is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. It didn't quite work out that way. The murder of Abel by Cain was only the first volley in this battle in Genesis chapter 6. Now let me pause here for a moment. I just take the Bible literally and plainly for what it says. Pastor Monty, this is going to freak me out. It shouldn't if you believe the Word of God. And by the way, for those who are super interested, you know what I'm going to do in January? You know what I'm going to do in January? I'm going to start in my Sunday school class a series, Deep Dive, Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, you say, Pastor Monty, how long is it going to go? It could go for years. Deep Dive. No idea. A deep dive where we're going to examine this both in the, uh, our English King James text as well as sometimes going into the Hebrew to find nuances of meaning that are not represented in the English text. We're going to do a deep dive, and if you're interested in what in the world happened, it is going to be unfiltered Genesis. So that's going to come in January. I'll announce it again when I finally decide upon the date to begin. But what happened in Genesis chapter 6? Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4, the Bible says fallen angels came to this earth, cohabitated sexually with human women, and produced the Nephilim. Boom. There it is. Well, Pastor Monty, I just don't think, no, 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 no. If you want to, I'm so mad. I'm so mad right now. I can't believe he'd say such a thing. <laughs> Calm down. Calm down. It's on the surface of the Bible, and it is fully embedded in the Hebrew text. And, I, and by the way, that interpretation that I just threw out there is the ancient interpretation, listen carefully, that was accepted by all of the Jews. It was accepted by all of the early church fathers. A later church father rejected it, Augustine, who had lots of theological problems. It was accepted by all of It was accepted. Can I blow your mind? I love it when you're paying attention to me. <laughs> what crazy thing is he going to say next? It was accepted 
by Peter and it was accepted by Jude. Okay, and I can prove everything I just said. Now, you say, Pastor Mike, well, okay, okay, these angels came down and cohabitated. What's that all about? Corrupting the human genome. If they couldn't win, if the devil couldn't win by the destruction of Abel, well, we'll just mess up the whole human race. We're going to prevent this Jesus, this Messiah, from being born. We're going to stop the seed of woman. Do you see this? He said, Pastor Marty, what happened? The flood. <laughs> the flood is what happened. You can read about that later in the book of Genesis. Cain and Abel, the corruption of the human genome. Uh, another example of the battle lines that are drawn. The Hebrew people. Now notice that God has gone from the human race now to focusing on just one group of people. In Genesis 12, the Hebrew people, the progenitor of whom was a man by the name of Abraham. But right away out of the very gate, as the Hebrew people began to grow, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his sons, as that family began to expand and eventually ended up into Egypt and eventually ended up into the countless hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Egypt, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 1, there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And when that happened, the favor of Egypt turned against those who were the slaves, and he declared that it was important to put to death all of the male babies. Do you know what that's called? Genocide. Do you know why that happened? Because Satan had to damage the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. By the way, every eye up here, Anti-Semitism is as old as Genesis chapter 12, and it is satanic, and it is wicked. I want you to understand that. Well, Pastor Monty, you just don't take a very nuanced view of the Israelis and the Palestinians. No, I don't. No, I don't. I side with the Hebrew people because they are God's chosen people. I wouldn't dare to side in any other way. That is firmly established. But Abram and the anti-Semitism... You said, was that predicted that it would be throughout the ages? I think I have a moment. Turn to um, Revelation 12, please. Revelation 12. I want you to see something clear. Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse number 1. Revelation 12, verse number 1. The Bible says, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Commentators interpret this as being Israel with the 12 patriarchs, the sons of Joseph. Uh, part, yes, the, pardon me, the sons of Jacob. And she came, look at verse 2. And she being with child cried travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. This is a picture of the Virgin Mary who was of course Jewish. And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great red dragon. Who do you all think that is? Satan, you'd be correct. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon he, as he was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who is that? Jesus, pretty clear, right? And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. That is the ascension of Christ after the resurrection. You say, Pastor, what is that? 
It is a picture, a panoramic snapshot of the opposition of Satan to the Jewish people throughout all the ages, including the New Testament era. Well, when did that event take place? When Herod, remember good old Herod, King Herod? Wicked man. When he slew the innocents in order to eliminate Christ because the wise men had warned him that the Messiah would be born. The Hebrew race and the Hebrew people have faced this pressure. The Bible says, though, not only would Jesus be of the human race and the Hebrew people of that race, he would also be of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. I don't have time to go into all the detail, but Satan opposed specifically the tribe of Judah. After the time of Solomon, the kingdom was divided into Israel and Judah. 722 BC, the northern kingdoms were taken, the northern tribes taken captive, and his focus was against Judah. It narrows even further, though, not just to a Hebrew people and to a particular tribe, the tribe of Judah, but it narrows to the house of David, sometimes referred to as the house of Jesse, David's father. We read in 2 Samuel 7, 16, that the Lord would give David a kingdom, that in place of wicked King Saul, David would come and that David would be established and his household would be established as the legitimate monarchy of Judah for as long as Judah would exist. But beyond the existence of Judah, there would come one who would ultimately be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and his name is Jesus. Pastor Monty, did the devil try to mess with David? <laughs> oh yeah, from day one, folks. Remember Saul? Saul tried on multiple occasions to kill David. He narrowly escaped on multiple occasions. Then David was tempted of the devil and what? He committed two great sins, remember that? And that, frankly, would have required, according to the law of Moses, death. But God accepted an offering. And the final one was the numbering of the people. We don't really understand what that had to do with, but something about David's taking a census was against what God had instructed. It incensed the Lord. But the Bible says in the book of 2 Chronicles 21.1 that Satan's numbering of the people was prompted by Satan. Well, why, Pastor Monty? Why is the devil? Because <laughs> the devil's going to prevent the seed of the woman from coming to fruition. He understands that this seed would come through humanity, so there was an attempted corruption. He understands that this seed would come now through the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, so there was an attempt to eliminate them. He understands that it will come from the tribe of Judah. If we can just mess up the tribe of Judah, we can prevent this one from being born. He understands that it will come from the house of David, and so all hell is unleashed against David because out of David's loin would come the seed of the Christ. And then the Bible says in Micah 5, verse 2, and this focuses it down to a fine point, folks, that this Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Have you ever wondered about the enigmatic nature of the Old Testament prophecies regarding Christ? Pastor Monty, why isn't it just clearly spelled out? Why is it that from a New Testament perspective we look back and now we see it with clarity, but maybe it was harder to see if you didn't have the New Testament, if you lived in the Old Testament era? I think part of the reason for that is this. He didn't want to give the devil a heads up on what he was doing. And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Micah 5 verse 2 predicts the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And what does Herod do? He begins the slaughter. 
Why kill all the babies? Why would the devil want to do that? To prevent the birth of Jesus, and then by the time of Micah 5, verse 2 in Bethlehem, to eliminate the Jesus who had been born. There were attacks all along the way. This is the epic battle. But Genesis 3.15 doesn't just talk about the enmity, the epic battle. It also talks about the bruising of the Christ. It says, thou, Satan, God says this, thou, Satan, shalt bruise his heel. The world does that mean? It speaks of a wounding of this one who would be the Christ. Now again, the language is really interesting. If you get a bruise on your heel, it is likely not life-threatening. You won't die from that. Anyone ever step on a thorn or get a nail in your heel? Yeah, it's very, very painful, isn't it? But, but you don't die of that. You, you can survive that as long as you don't get sepsis. You can survive that. It speaks of the fact that this one who is the seed of woman would be bruised in his heel by Satan. Oh, Pastor Monty, when did that happen? <laughs> Remember, in his crucifixion, they put the nail through his hands and his feet, most literally fulfilled in the act of crucifixion. Well, Pastor, that was for our salvation. Yes, ultimately, but Satan didn't know that at the time. Here's something you need to understand. Satan doesn't know the future. Satan does not understand the workings of God. And when all of the powers of hell had conspired throughout Jesus' ministry to put him to death, and none of those things would work, when finally we had the betrayal, where Satan entered into Judas and he betrayed Jesus, where finally we had the mock trials and ultimately the crying and jeering of the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, and the sickening sound of the nails as they went through the hands and the feet of the Son of God as he was nailed to the cross. All hell sat on the edge of its seat, awaiting with great joy the destruction of Christ. And when Jesus Christ, God's Son and the Son of God, breathed his last, declaring, It is finished! I believe that all hell rose in thunderous, demonic applause. You say, preacher, didn't the devil understand? He didn't have a clue. And that's the beauty of it. Satan was tricked. Jesus has died. Have you ever asked yourself why some of the most enigmatic, the most difficult to understand, the most um, mysterious prophecies in the Bible concerning the life of Christ are of his resurrection. We see it now. But it would have been very hard to see it back then. We see it crystal clearly now in the pages of the Old Testament, but it was kind of hidden because the devil had no idea that in the span of three days, the one who has been put to death, the Messiah, the God-man who has now died, will rise from the grave victorious over death. When we think about his resurrection, we think about victory. Christ was bruised, but Satan didn't see the resurrection coming. But the last thing, quickly, 
That verse, Genesis 3.15, talks about the banishment of Satan. You see, if you look back at the verse, it says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed, Satan, and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. The heel bruising is Christ. The head bruising is Satan. So in this epic battle, while Christ will be wounded, and he certainly was in his death on the cross, the Bible says that the head of the serpent will be bruised or crushed. Now think with me. There's a difference between having an injury in your heel. Is Pastor Ryan in here? Where's Pastor Ryan? Pastor Ryan, there you are, Pastor Ryan. Pastor Ryan had the classic injury in your heel. It was awful. It was horrible. I wouldn't minimize that for anything in the world. He was in a terrible motorcycle accident. By the way, he's risen again. But he's in a total motor- motorcycle accident. And a horrible, horrible thing. Painful, miserable. He's got pictures that you shouldn't look at before you eat dinner. I'm telling you, you've got great pictures of this. But he's back and fine. I hate to use this illustration, Pastor Ryan. Pardon me as I do this. What if that had happened to his head? Wow. There'd be a different story. There'd be a little grave somewhere, wouldn't there? With a little casket. Pastor Ryan, you're crying right now. That's beautiful. You know why? A wound to the head is deadly. When God said in Genesis 3.15, Satan, your head will be bruised, it means your head will be crushed. You say, Pastor, when is the fulfillment of that? That began in earnest at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he was declared to be alive. That began as Jesus at some point, likely at his death, announced to the spirits in prison, those in Tartarus, his coming resurrection and his victory in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. But the ultimate fulfillment of that is the victory of Christ over Antichrist. I'll close this morning by reading a scripture. Take your Bible with me, please. I want every eye to see this. Revelation 20. Revelation chapter 20. The beginning of the message, I said ultimately it will be the seed of the woman, Christ, in opposition to the ultimate seed of Satan, which is Antichrist. Look with, you, with me, if you will, please, in Revelation chapter 20. The Bible says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years shall be fulfilled, and after that he is loosed for a little season." That's the beginning of the crushing of Satan. Drop down, please, to verse 5. The Bible says this, verse number 5. The rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. They shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. He is being held in the deepest parts of hell, likely a place called Tartarus. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. This is following the the millennial kingdom age. Gog, Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom it is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about. 
the beloved city, Jerusalem. The fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured him. Look at verse number 10. If you want to talk to me about the crushing of the head of the serpent, read verse number 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Look at me, ladies and gentlemen, and I close. Genesis 3.15 describes an epic battle. The battle lines are drawn, war is declared. There have been skirmishes, fights, warfare, an outright battle between good and evil, God and Satan, Christ and the spirit of Antichrist throughout this entire age. But one day, that old serpent who torments your life, one day that devil who accuses you before the throne of God, One day that one who has painted darkness across this whole earth and evil systemic in this world, one day his head will be crushed and he will be no more. And my question to you is this, what side are you on? What side are you on? Pastor, I guess I'm on God's side, I'm a good person. You're only on God's side if you have come to trust Christ and him alone as the savior of your soul. The good news is anyone can join God's side. Jesus said, whosoever will may come, but you must come. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the savior, that he is God the son and the son of God, that he came to earth, lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross as a bloodshed sacrifice for sin, that he rose again the third day, and in believing you're trusting him to save your soul, you're embracing him. And Jesus in John chapter three called that being born again. And if you're here this morning and you've never been saved, you've never trusted Christ as your savior, or you're not sure about that, please don't leave. The battle will continue. Please don't leave without knowing that you know that you know that you are on the right side. Father, please take your word as we've looked at a very panoramic view of events scattered throughout scripture that all relate back to Genesis 3.15. I pray you'll take your word and help us to see that Christmas is a movement within the greatest battle that these battle lines were drawn and they they continue to this present hour. And if anyone here wonders what side they're on, they're not sure. Oh Lord, please today, Holy Spirit, I pray you'll, you'll speak to their heart. Draw them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Because we know the end. We know that in the end, the devil will be crushed. May any who do not know Christ come to know him today, we pray in Jesus' name. Stand with me, please, everyone.